Welcome everybody to Health Hackers episode 38. I am Gemma Evans, journalist and presenter here in the UK. This is my series spotlighting pioneers in health. And today I am joined by a gentleman known as the world's most watched surgeon, Professor Shafi Ahmed. Now there's a lot to say about Shafi, so I'm going to tell you a little bit before we even begin this interview, okay? So Shafi is a consultant laparoscopic colorectal surgeon specializing in cancer at the Royal London Hospital. He's also one of the founders of a virtual and augmented reality company called Medical Realities. And we're at your office now, aren't we? That yeah. base here in London. And in 2016, Shafi set up a 360 degree camera over his operating table and broadcasts an entire surgical procedure in virtual reality live. He then became the first surgeon to wear Snapchat spectacles throughout another operation and that was so that he could record and broadcast clips showing exactly what he was doing to help teach medical students around the world. More recently, Shafi was part of a TV series in which one of his operations was live streamed on national television this time. And he is known for his health and surgery technology expertise. His Twitter profile says he's building the hospital of the future. And for the next half an hour, we will be discussing what that means. And maybe we'll find out how we might be undergoing surgical operations in the future. Shafi, thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. Welcome. So in summary, you're saving people's lives daily with being a cancer surgeon, but you're also trying to massively update the way hospitals and the healthcare system functions with technology. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think what we're trying to do is um, use these technologies and translate them to clinical practice. Whether that's education or clinical need, uh, healthcare needs disruption. We know that. So for my role is really to reimagine and re-kind of educate people about how healthcare might be functioning in the future. So what is wrong? with the way hospitals work right now, the way operations function, the way the healthcare system is run? What's the biggest problem? Why does it need this upgrade? So I think traditionally um, healthcare has been stuck with, uh, with what I call dogma and tradition. We're very reluctant to embrace change as a profession across all healthcare. Um, and so how do you change? How do you disrupt people's minds and thoughts? So look, we're now living in this amazing world. And I, I tell people this is really an exciting time to be alive, probably the most amazing time that I've experienced as a, as a doctor and as a healthcare professional, because we have the ability to use a lot of technologies, which I call exponential technologies, which all come together at the same time. This whole concept of the fourth health revolution or fourth industrial revolution or health 4.0 is allowing us to think in a different way. And if you look at the global kind of health problem, we can't afford health at the moment. It's unaffordable, it's inaccessible, uh, and it's inequitable. We have huge major issues around the world. So I think we've got to think differently and tech might be an enabler to allow this healthcare to be reimagined in a different way so that we all want to achieve the right outcomes for our patients. So that's the kind of message. So do you think though that one of the biggest problems we have is that the healthcare system in its current state requires a lot of waiting from people? And we live in an age where we're used to things happening very quickly. Yes. Yeah. So look, as humans, look, if you look at where we are as a society, we're very much immediate in what we need. 
And to give an example and extrapolate that, if you look at the big global companies like Uber, for example, and taxis, when we order an Uber taxi, it takes a few minutes maybe to get there. Now, if your app says to you that the, um, the taxi is 25 minutes away, you get very upset, you're angry, you're almost frustrated by the length of time it takes. Similarly with Netflix, with images and uh, films immediately, and Amazon with access to our wait for a book, for example, for your home. It's a kind of media set, and I call this the one-click generation. It's who we are. But in medicine, if you see the same thing, if you have to see a doctor, uh, a primary care physician, a GP, you make an appointment, it might be two or three weeks before that appointment arrives. So on the one hand, we're happy to wait three weeks for an appointment, uh, maybe eight weeks to see a doctor in the hospital, maybe a whole year for, for a surgery to be performed, yet we can't wait two minutes for a taxi, etc. Now this is the dichotomy, and I think healthcare is far more important than a taxi or an Amazon book. So we've got to reverse the mindset, make it more media, which we can do, of course, with technology. So talk to me about your live streaming, because you've become famous now for this, this live streaming element mm. with your surgeries. Why did you start doing that? What was the purpose originally? So one of my roles um, that I've had um, over many years is being a teacher and educator. So I've been the associate dean at Bart's Medical School. And you know, Bart's Medical School has been around for hundreds of years. Uh, the hospital itself has been around since about 1123. So it's a rather ancient kind of institution. Teaching surgery hasn't changed or evolved over many, many years. Because what we face, we have medical students or other students in our operating theatre, and they're there for eight, ten hours a day almost uh, with us in the room. And traditional methods of teaching have been involving them being in the room, but in the back of the room, but not really engaged with what's going on. So two things. One is that, how is that teaching and learning? They're often in the back of the room on their smartphone, on Instagram, or on Facebook, or on streaming, whatever it is. So they're actually doing different things. And they spend a lot of money for the privilege of being in that room. And I call this learning by a process of osmosis and diffusion. It's like you're just being in the presence of a surgeon or a theatre, you're supposed to somehow learn. Not good enough, or well, we haven't challenged it. That's the first thing. And secondly is about if you imagine who we are surgeons. We are kind of, we have, we're trained, we have lots of skills over many years, it's a long time to get this level. And my question is always, how do you share that knowledge uh, on a global scale? After we teach one or two people in the room, why not share knowledge with many people, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions, because that's a legacy that we want to leave behind. So two things, one is disrupting education, the way we teach, secondly is actually scaling it up and seeing actually what I'm offering now, teaching, I could share with a lot more people. And that's why I've experimented and tried to figure out how we could do better and have better kind of methods of learning uh, for people around the world. So they can access what you're doing. So you, you have worn Google Glass as well yep. while you've done an operation so that people, medical students, can go online or, or watch via an app with their own kind of Google Cardboard headset and watch what you're doing in the operating theatre, is that correct? It is. It's about the points of view. So obviously when you're in the operating theatre and everyone's huddled around together, it's still to see what's going on, unless you're the primary or secondary surgeon or the assistant, for example. And that view you cannot see from outside. So the idea is then, if you want to scale up that kind of learning, it has to be cheap and affordable. And my kind of dream has always been high-tech, low-cost solutions, which is the way the world needs to be uh, run. So you could get a Google Cardboard headset, which costs, what, $5 or so, maybe less, a smartphone, which is ubiquitous, uh, and an app that's free. So for a very small price, you can access learning through a points of view approach, see what the surgeon is watching at the same time, and then actually interacting with the environment. So Google Glass, for example, when I had the glasses on and doing a live operation back in 2014, 
uh, students around the world could watch on their smartphones, wherever they were. I had great pictures of people on the beach, my students watching it and seeing what was learning. And they could actually text a message. So the message they were texting on their phone to me would pop up in my glass in the corner. So as I was operating, I could look up and answer at the same time, interact with many people. So that's the kind of thing I've been experimenting with using live stream, augmented virtual reality to see whether that's a way we could teach in the future. And I, and I think that is the way we're going to be teaching over the long term. Now, didn't you find that a bit distracting? You got questions popping up in, in your vision while you're trying to carry out an operation. So that's an interesting question and I have to get asked this question about the issues around uh, safety. So one thing about the operations that I've carried out and live streamed is that I've always been absolutely meticulous about the safety of the patient, no question. One is about infection control, making sure that we don't take any risks and making sure that I'm happy and safe in the environment. One of the interesting thing is you might think actually it's really um, uh, you'd get kind of distracted by doing all this. But what I found actually before the operation, yes, a lot of distraction, there's a noise going on about what I'm trying to do. The minute you pick up a scalpel, the minute you start doing the operation, you're kind of in your zone. Everything else disappears. The glass disappears, the virtual camera disappears, because you're just focusing on what you do every day. And the other thing is I'm not doing new operations I've never tried before. These are things I do all the time. And I train every day to my trainees. I'm talking constantly, we're training, we're interacting. All we're doing that is just magnifying the amplitude. Tumor removals. Yeah, uh, cancer removal, yes. And so, are you answering your students' questions as you're going? Because they're popping up. Uh, sometimes. What we, initially we did that, but then we realised actually we need to make the system much better. Uh, and so we have a moderator in theatre. So what we do now is the questions go to the moderator. Uh, they can answer them uh, if they want to. And the ones that are difficult or tricky or they want my expertise, they'll then send that to me. So we can limit and manage the whole expectation around that, uh, I guess, the, the transmission. How do you handle nerves, not just as a surgeon, but having all the cameras on you too, at the same time? So initially when I first uh, did that live uh, surgery, which was I think I had the entire ITN News at 10 team in my theatre, and that was a, a big deal, I, that was the first time I've done it and there was a lot of in interest about uh, Google Glass at the time and what I was trying to achieve. So initially when I first did it, obviously there was some nerves and it was difficult and I kind of uh, managed it appropriately. But over the course of years, it's become easier and easier that I don't really think about it too much. We know we're going to perform. And the operation itself, I know when I go to the operating theatre, ultimately it's the patient and, uh, and me, the relationship that I have with them, make sure they're safe, and I do the best operation that I can. And that's not, um, I don't think, uh, impacted by cameras anymore. Um, and I'm just, used, I'm just used to having it around. And more importantly, you orchestrate the entire scenario. You tell where people they need to be. You tell them when they need to stop recording if it's inappropriate, for example. You know exactly what the environment needs to look like and how the teams behave uh, so that it, it, you show professionalism. So I've learned almost like a theatre. It is called operating theatre, remember, that's where we come from, right? How to manage the expectation. And I'm much happier, of course, now than I was before. Uh, and now we've automated the whole system so it works uh, effortlessly. So is that how you manage nerves and stress? You just make sure things are in order? I think you have to be a bit of a control freak because you're in charge. Ultimately, when you're doing these kind of innovative new techniques, um, the buck stops with you. You've got to manage it, expectations. You've got to manage the, the way that you're operating, 
the dignity for the patient, for example, and the team working so that it comes across really professional, and that's what you do on a daily basis. Take away some of the noise that comes with the kind of innovation that you create. So I'm really comfortable now. We've got a stage where I have no issues with that anymore. Uh, we used to delay the transmission by 30 or 40 seconds in case it was a catastrophe or something, just because we were trying to be safe. But we don't do that anymore because we think actually it's fine. We, we know what we're doing. And the whole team I've got in my theatre now at the Royal London Hospital are superb. They just manage it really well, as we've shown at the Operation Live recently. Um, tell, <coughs> us, tell us why you are such a big deal in Bolivia right now. <laughs> the story about Bolivia is really fascinating. It's, um, if people want to see the entire uh, journey of Bolivia, there's a, a Wired Health talk that's worth exploring on, on the website on my, uh, on my page. I've seen it on YouTube. Which I recommend that. It's about 15 minutes long, but it tells you about the journey. So essentially, all the work I've been doing on a global health stage and all the work I'm, I've been doing on innovation, um, interestingly, as a person working in the UK, in London, you're never sure about the impact that you might have. And it's surprising sometimes what people might think. So basically, I was more famous in South America without me ever realizing I was famous in South America or a big deal. And the people believe Bolivia reached out to me uh, a few years ago. They actually sent a search party uh, for me in San Diego. They kind of approached me and said, we're looking for you for the last couple of years. We found you, which was really shocking. <laughs> they said, will you come to Bolivia? We've got some great ideas that we want to share with you. We'd like to give you an honorary PhD. But on the back of that, there's other things we want to talk about with you. So finally, uh, after six months, I, I went to Bolivia where I was just embraced by the whole country, including the, the president, the vice president, everybody else. Because they basically wanted you and your futuristic medical yes. vision in Bolivia. Yes. So what their issue is, they want their building a hospital, um, they think about reshaping healthcare in Bolivia. And they've got a country, it's a poor country, but aiming much bigger. They're thinking, how can we actually supersede some of the other countries around the world? Let's do our own thing. We don't have to copy other people's. We can reimagine healthcare with technology at the forefront. And you as a visionary could help us direct this whole um, story around future healthcare. So in the end, they offered me um, a kind of a CEO role at the hospital. They said, would you mind coming and spending time with us? And then of course the crux was when they said, we're naming after you. And I thought, how can you decline that kind of invitation? So, and their whole idea and the team around this are just wonderful. They're all exponential thinkers. They deliver. It's a hundred million dollar investment. Um, and we'll be working with the government and the entire community to build something. And hopefully we can be a, a fulcrum for others to think about similar ideas. More importantly, it's for me it's an innovation hub. We can really try and do things differently and perhaps making healthcare more cost effective ultimately. But that's what we need to do. We need to just literally start on a have blank canvas, uh, clean slate and say, let's start again. What does it look like? And these technologies, where are they appropriately placed? How to create a hospital that's safe and future proof. And that's kind of the solution. So there is a hospital in Bolivia named after you. Mm -hmm. This is the hospital of the future uh, with 100 million investment. Mm -hmm. And what kind of technology is inside the hospital of the future? Are we talking about robotic doctors? In time, maybe. So what we've done first of all, you've got to create a hospital that's based on good data acquisition. So really good electronic health record that connects with everybody so you can withdraw data as far as possible. So everything's joined up, right? It has to be. At the moment we struggle with interoperability. So we think, okay, let's how, how do we create our own system that everything connects? That's the first thing. Then we can draw data and use that data smartly and the healthcare can be data driven. On top of that, what are the overlays? Yes, there'll be virtual reality, augmented reality kind of training platforms, simulation rooms, there'll be voice technology, uh, facial recognition probably at some point. There'll be AI interfaces where it's relevant. Uh, for image recognition or perhaps dermatology. So why would you use image recognition in a hospital? 
uh, I, I think uh, imaging. So for example, chest x-rays, CT scans, and that kind of stuff, we're actually uh, already we're seeing in the world where AI companies will allow you to diagnose a chest x-ray, for example, using an AI algorithm that's better than a single radiologist, but comparable to two radiologists. So it's pretty high sensitivity. So imagine you do a chest x-ray, and you have one, you go in, current format makes you wait a week or so for the, for the result to come back, which is stressful for a lot of people. With the AI algorithm, it'll be able to show you the x-ray, the details, the, the diagnosis within a millisecond. And that could ultimately be pointed to your smartphone straight away, saying this is abnormal, go and see a doctor. So a doctor could be pointing at an app, scanning the x-ray and get a diagnosis? Partly, and partly in the back end of the actual x-ray system, which is all electronic. As you're taking it, the system, the algorithm will tell you what's abnormal, what's not normal, right? So immediately the system will work for you. And how do you capture that data? How do you transfer it to the doctor and the patient? I think a patient app or a portal will have access to their own records, uh, blood results, x-ray, all that kind of stuff. That's what we're trying to create. So that it's kind of seamless, it empowers patients, but also remember it has to be a safe and effective hospital. So people talk about technology, and I, you know, I get that, that's just an enabler. What you have to create is a safe hospital that's got good governance and good outcomes. Tech will add on to that, make it more valuable and make it more accessible. So it's that combination of traditional way you want to do things correctly, but at the same time pushing that boundary, allow access to people that need the information at the right time. And if you create a smart healthcare system, you're then building a system that will develop as the population grows. For example, genomic data. So we may end up getting genomic data on everybody. And if you so do that... Explain to us what that would mean for all of us. We'd be tracking our physiology from birth. Yeah, so ideally since you enter the hospital, we'll be able to track illnesses, diseases, what you're getting, and going back to saying, uh, trying to prevent some of the illnesses in the future. Uh, and what we're trying to create is a system where we want wellness, we want prevention of disease, as well as treating people as far as possible. In this private hospital, my aim is to keep people out of hospital, which kind of makes no sense because you're trying to make money right from the hospital. But actually, the, the, the thing to do and be attractive is so actually we could design healthcare in a way that will keep you out of hospital. That's the idea. I heard you're looking into teleportation. <laughs> yes. How, how would this work in the hospital of the future? So look, I think the paradigm of the doctor-patient relationship has to change. If you think about the most expensive part of the healthcare system, it's the doctor-patient interaction. It's so expensive. It takes time. It's, um, you have to be close to somebody, uh, adding 20, 30 minutes of, of time itself. We can't afford that system any longer. Yes, that's important for certain areas like cancer diagnosis and cancer management and being empathic and being close to a patient. Of course, that's part of what we do. A lot of things we can do, we can do remotely. So we've got to get away with this thing about being together in the same place at the same time. That's going to change with virtual reality, augmented reality, with holoportation, teleportation. So wouldn't it be a great if you could access a doctor, for example, immediately, as we discussed earlier about this immediacy, someone could just literally pop in from, say, America, in front of you as a hologram, give you a diagnosis, see what you're doing, and disappear again. That's far more efficient use of time and energy. And also things like going to conferences or further learning episodes and travelling to learn new techniques, that'll be diminished because that's expensive and time inefficient. So I think the holoportation, teleportation thing is coming along. I've experimented with trying to transport myself in real time. And we worked with a few companies in the UK where I managed to holoport myself using the Microsoft HoloLens system um, remotely. And in fact, about a year ago in the operating theatre at the Royal London, 
we used a special uh, software on the, on the HoloLens. And during the operation, I could drag in experts uh, from New York and from um, Mumbai in India, surgeons into operating theatres, their avatars. So as our, for example, if you're a surgeon needing help, calling people immediately, they come into your space, you're sharing the images, x-rays, seeing what's going on. It becomes a kind of, almost like a, a collaboration where you can actually offer expertise remotely. And I think remoteness is so important to kind of crack because we have problems with refugees, we have problems with translocation, we have problems with war-torn zones. Mm. And if you solve some of those issues with technology and make people much closer, then actually we'll solve some issues around healthcare immediately here. Mm. So that your hologram or other surgeons' holograms can appear on demand and offer guidance. Absolutely. That's exciting. Um, when do you think we would see autonomous surgeons, robot surgeons, more widely uh, featuring in hospitals? 20 years? 30 years? Okay, let's, let's take that bit by bit. Um, at some point we will see that. So uh, at the moment, the lot of robots coming onto the market, that's the first thing. So robotics has been around for about 20, 20 25 years. Um, and now we're seeing a plethora of new surgical robots coming onto market this year and next year. In fact, we've got one from the UK. Uh, which is an amazing device. So all the big companies now are saying, well, robots are coming in. And robots are good because they make you operate more precisely, offer you better visualizations, and they're good. How do you convert to autonomous? So we're much, very much led by the, of course, the car, uh, driverless cars and things, which is a great thing. And I always look at what they're doing because they're shaping autonomous um, framework for all of us, the litigation, the legal framework. We're getting an idea of what they're approaching. About two years ago, there was a kind of robot that came out that managed to join two bits of bowel together. And I'm a kind of bowel surgeon. And it did it very nicely. So the technical parts are now being augmented. So I think probably by, as we go forward with all these technologies, within the next 20 years, no question, we'll see robots doing part of the operation, augmenting your work, uh, and perhaps even replacing some of your procedures that you do already. And that's just around the corner. I reckon it's about between 10 and 20 years, most likely. Wow, but so in 20 years, somebody could be having bowel surgeon from a, a robot? Potentially. It may be something more simple, of course, first yeah. of all, uh, as we go to more and more complex operations. But I think within 20 years, you'll see autonomous surgery being performed. It may not be completely autonomous, but what I'm saying is that people think about this replacement thing, replacing doctors. We're not going to be replaced at the moment. We're going to be augmenting our practices. And that's a really clear distinction to make. It'll improve our practice. It'll make it better, make it more efficient, allow us to allow for less error, for example. So I think it's a question of working together in this field rather than saying, are we going to be replaced? That's the wrong conversation. I think that just scares people mm -hmm. unnecessarily. I think a lot of people do see it in that either or yeah. scenario. Um, one thing that I learned about you recently is that you quite often have to be the person who tells a patient they have cancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can't imagine a robot doing that. And, and firstly, how, how were, you, were you trained to do that in medical school? Were you, was there a special way that you were taught to tell someone they have cancer? Or was That's that your own instinct? <clears throat> it's a really good question. So we are taught communication skills, and not so much when I was in medical school, that's a long time ago. It's more modern way of thinking, and we do have communication skills in every medical school. They do teach you the ways of breaking bad news and the things you need to have around you and, and the concepts. 
But it's an innate quality that you acquire over many years, whether it's just your um, maturity, you've learned from over the course experience and failures, I guess. Um, so it's something that becomes almost innate and a quality that you derive yourself. So I found that, of course, I break bad news every Tuesday to a whole load of cancer patients. Every Tuesday? Every Tuesday. I, I, I oh, run a wow. cancer clinic. And we see a lot of cancer patients and we're breaking bad news. That's where humanity comes at its finest point. The empathy, the team around you, how they work. Now, robots, as we move forward, I think will have empathy. You can add empathy into some of the robots. They'll be able to do certain things. Um, we're not quite ready for them to replace the doctor from breaking that bad news. But I think we're not too far off from having an empathic doctor kind of robot that people actually accept as being as good, if not as good enough, as another doctor. What does it feel like every Tuesday when you're going to work and you know you're going to have to tell <coughs> at least one person yeah. they've got cancer? It has different moments. It is your job that you do, so you're very professional about how you manage it. Um, sometimes it's quite emotional when you see some people that really touch you. Other times you just need to do certain things to get through that patient makes sure they understand everything and becomes not a ritual or not kind of automatic because you know the things you have, you've got about five to 10 to see in that day so you've got to get through the system. But there's no question, it touches you, there's, you know, you walk away after it and it, it kind of makes you very solemn. Uh, at the end of the clinic, you feel, think about the world as a whole and your role and what's going on with healthcare. Uh, and we often share those um, kind of conversations with our nurse specialists who are with us in the room, who support us in that decision-making process. And it, I think it brings you down to earth. One of the things about surgery, I think, and the work that I do, it's a very humbling experience. Um, in the old days, you know, people think you know, we're arrogant and surgeons are like this. Actually, I, I'd say the very opposite is true. We have to deal with complications, death on the table, patients having uh, outcomes that are poor sometimes, which is inevitable part of surgery and also breaking bad news, seeing cancer, uh, uh, ultimately uh, killing people with the, with the illness. When you see all of that, you become a very humble human being. I'd like to say that most surgeons are actually, at the, at the heart of it, quite humble people, because we've seen it all. Um, so the bravado that you might see from some people hides a much more complex process, where we actually struggle ourselves sometimes with diagnosis, but also uh, treating people, I think, just makes you aware of, of your own limitations as a human being. I just find it fascinating and you have to be so brave to do that job, but it's so needed. I mean, is death on the table common? No, not at all. But, but having, having complications after the operation, that's part of what we do. So you can't be a surgeon without having a complication. Um, it's almost yeah. a, a necessary fallibility, if you like as Atul Gawande says. And it's dealing with those. It's okay to have a nice operation, beautiful operation, that goes really well, everyone's happy, and you're happy, it's great. The, the, but the crux of the surgeon, and the beauty of the surgeon, and I think the art of the surgery, is spotting problems when they go wrong. So picking up straight away and dealing with it, having the, the, the bravery at that point to challenge that and say, I need to deal with this, it's a problem, how has it gone wrong, and I need to deal with that, and how do I learn from that? So I think that's the kind of surgeon that you want to see, who who approaches that with vigour and deals with the complexity of a situation and deals with the complication or a, a bad outcome. And that's what you want your surgeons to be able to do. Not just have a beautiful operation, but it's actually dealing with things that might go wrong and dealing in a way that gets the patient better. Let's <coughs> go back to the hospital of the future. Sure. Um, why can't we build a hospital of the future in the UK? 
I think the problem with the UK is that uh, there's two legacy systems. We're entrenched in our ways. Healthcare, the professionals are entrenched in their views. And as I said before earlier in this podcast, is around this thing about dogma and tradition. We do things the way we've done it for many years, we definitely challenge it. That's one of the problems. <clears throat> Second thing is that things don't really connect as much. So we're now trying to connect legacy old systems, that's IT systems, either pathology or dermatology, and then try to bring it to the 21st century and then move it forward. And that's always a bit tricky. We almost have to dismantle it all, I would suggest, and start all over again. I mean, we have, for example, we have electronic health record systems, and we have two or three different types in the UK, and they're very expensive, and they don't really connect properly. They're not fit for purpose. And if you want to add things onto it, it's really difficult. So my view is that we'll just, let's just get rid of those, start all over again, produce our own one that connects with everything, and rebuild the whole process. But we're so far down the line now, it's hard to go back to that beginning where we can actually rethink. And that's a shame because we're, it's a dichotomy. We are trying to challenge, move it forward, and the NHS is doing well with technology as a whole. But at the same time, it's limited by its, the way it works, the way it functions. It works in silos often, different departments don't communicate. It's hard for companies to come in and to express and translate the tech into clinical practice on a, on a nationwide scale. It's just pockets of innovation. So there are many levels where I think NHS could do better, but, um, but I think it will str- uh, won't struggle, but I think it's, it will take time for it to envelop all those ideas uh, across the nation. And I guess that's what's behind a lot of your work. You're trying to help the NHS yes. upgrade and improve. What can we do as patients, as citizens, yeah. to help speed things up in the NHS and help help the technology advance a bit? So I, I think patients are the crucial part. For all these conversations I have, it's always about the patient being the heart of that conversation. We often forget with technology, innovation, startups, and the whole kind of world I live in, that we often forget the end user. It's often done. We go to conferences, for example, you know that. The patients aren't represented. So I'd say we make patients the centre part of that. We have that conversation. They become the stakeholders important. And I think we underestimate patients. I think we're very uh, paternalistic in our views. We think you, we know what a patient wants. We know what you want because we kind of are healthcare professionals. Actually, you'd be surprised how empowered patients are with technology and innovation and we should use them more. For example, I know some patients, for example, I've come across in the time that I've been working, who have gone away, looked at their own problems, and used tech to solve them, and are bringing tech companies. And we haven't really embraced that. Why not encourage them to work with us? So, okay, what are the solutions that you want? How to what, create like a few. Trackers, sensors, trackers, sensors, yeah. all those kind of things. And they figure it out themselves. So, one of the things that we talk about often is that if you ever look at every company in technology that's in healthcare, you always have a CEO a chief executive, you always have a chief medical officer, you have a chief operating officer, a chief finance officer, those are the kind of things that we use. Very rarely do you see a healthcare company employ a chief patient officer, a CPO. So, and I think that's amazing that we don't actually encourage that more. Maybe what we should be doing is encourage them to be part of that startup because their views are so important into, into delineating what's necessary and what's safe almost. So I, I think the strategy for us has to be embrace it's about collaboration. You can't do this technology and um, implementation without having the end user. Uh, and I think that the, the word that I'd always use about all of this to improve healthcare is collaboration. You need doctors, you need scientists, you need computer scientists, you need engineers, you need patients, you need um, stakeholders, all working together to find the solutions. Um, and often it's just one individual with one idea who's trying to push it forward. That's not good enough, it won't exist in this world. So your message for patients would be embrace it, be willing 
I guess you can't help people get well unless they want to get well. Of course not. And we, we need to uh, we need to really understand fundamentally what drives them, how can we help them. But also, I think there's this whole story around what I call social re-engineering. And this is obviously a bit controversial term I'll use, but I think I'll share it with you because society works by expectation. So, for example, if you're a patient, you expect to see a GP for a few minutes, a 10-minute appointment, then be referred to uh, a practice, for example, then to a specialist. There's a whole process around that that we've kind of drilled you down to. Actually, you've got to say, actually, let's re-engineer this. Your future doctor will not be a human being. It might be AI chatbots, it might be AI algorithm as your first point of contact. Let's get used to that. How do we have that conversation? Maybe you will see someone about telemedicine or telepresence systems or holoportation. How do we get you ready for this? And your data, we want you to access data, but tell us what data you want to access. You know, is it safe? What would you like us to do with you? So that social engineering of society is so important from top bottom and bottom top telling us, look, this is the way it's going to happen. And those conversations aren't really happening. I remember just driving change, but actually not thinking about society as a whole and how it's going to adapt to these new kind of technologies and, and healthcare innovations. And I'd like to see much of that being done on all levels. That requires investment, that requires time, but I think we underestimate the intelligence and intellectual capabilities of our patients. I think we need to actually probably do more with them to enable that society that we want to create to happen quicker. Otherwise, it'll be slow. It'll be the same as ever. We'd have the inventors, the adopters, the early adopters, and everybody else is lagging behind. What you want is all these people to bring up, so let's kind of do it together at pace. And that's the concept I think we need to have. So everybody needs to know more about what's happening. Yeah, and that education is there. Well, hopefully they'll all watch this episode of Health Hackers and find out. Um, we're up on time. Um, Shafi, where can people follow you on social media? So I'm on LinkedIn, of course. My Twitter profile is at ShafiAmed5. Instagram, at Virtual Surgeon. Uh, and my website uh, is surgeon.ai or professorshafiamed.com and you'll see all my things on that. And also I have a YouTube channel, again, Virtual Surgeon, and you'll see all my videos and things I've been up to the last few uh, years. I'm going to put links to everything Shafi just mentioned on the episode page at healthhackers.uk. And if you're watching this on YouTube, there'll be some links beneath the video too. Thank you for watching everybody. Thank you, Shafi. Pleasure, thank you.